0: Hi, I'm Ali from Shanghai Chan. If you like our show, why not support it with a small donation? Become a Shanghai patron by donating as little as five dollars a month, and you will get a cool Shanghai branded sticker. For ten dollars, you get one of our amazing Shanghai coffee mugs. Just go to patreon.com/shanghaijohn to sign up. That's patreon. P-a-t-r-e-o-n. dot com slash Shanghai Thanks for your support.
1: Welcome to Shanghai Zhan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts. You can hear more about Shanghai Zhan at our website, johnstation.com. Coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai, I'm Bryce Whitwam. And I'm Ali Kazmi. And today's episode, we are taking a slight detour from marketing and advertising and talk about the impact of the recent Shanghai lockdown. For many, especially the expatriate population, it has become a time to reevaluate our future priorities. Put it more directly, foreign companies are reducing investments in China, and many foreigners are considering leaving. According to a recent AmCham China survey, 52% of those surveyed in May 2022 said that the pandemic will force them to reduce foreign staff. This is not just an American thing. Surveys from German and Japanese business associations point to close to 45% of expats will plan to leave Shanghai in the next six months. Those who have come to China early and built their careers here fell in love with this place. The people, the market opportunity, the drive, the passion have all been key motivators. Most of us witnessed the complete transformation of a country. But things have now changed. And we won't go into the details today, but discuss the challenge for many of us in transitioning out of China. Of course, leaving China at some point was inevitable, but this has now been accelerated. There's now a huge fear of uncertainty both on the future of China, but there's also one facing many once they get home. So, how to plan for the transition? We thought we'd talk to two experts. In this case, experts of experience who have recently left China and can share their journeys and possibly give us some advice on how to plan for that transition. First, we have Milo Chow. He's currently the chief strategy officer at advertising agency DDB in Chicago. Milo previously came to China in 1997 as an intern for Reuters, later becoming chief strategy officer for DDB China and then later advertising agency TBWA. Milo returned to the U.S. in 2019 to serve as head of marketing for innovative appliance company Simple Human, based in Los Angeles before moving to the Windy City. We are also honored to have Kerr Gibbs, He's currently an executive in residence at the University of San Francisco. Kerr previously came to China in 1986 as an English teacher at the Beijing University of Iron and Steel, later name changed to the Beijing University of Science and Technology, preceding me at that same school by a year. Is that right, Kerr?
2: That is correct. Kerr has
1: held several senior positions in Boston Consulting Group, Corn Ferry, and including six years at Apple Kerr is most known for his role as the past president of AmCham Shanghai from 2019 to 2021. Kerr returned to the U.S. in the early part of this year. Kerr, Milo, welcome to Shanghai John. Thank you, Bryce. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. That's right. And before we get started, we'd like to remind everyone that if you like the show, please give us a five star review on your favorite platform, Apple Podcasts or Spotify both have places to leave reviews, and it helps a lot. Let's get started here. Maybe we could start by asking you what was the original motivation to come to China, and more importantly, why did you end up staying so long? Milo, let's start with you.
3: Uh, well, I I first uh, came to China in 1992. I came to visit my cousin who was teaching at the Beijing Language Institute, and at the time I was studying Chinese in college. I had started studying Chinese because my father, who is Chinese, decided that it was best not to teach me Chinese. So I had to uh, learn it myself and did so with a really poor, um, my tones suck, but uh, I did struggle through it. Um, I uh, spent two years in Taiwan after university. Then I went to uh, the uh, Hopkins Nanjing program for a year, and then I went to uh, to Beijing. So uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a I've come in and out of China several times, but uh, your question was what has kept me here? And I, I think uh, what has kept me here is is the, the, or what kept me there for so long was the dynamism of of the market. I mean the constant change, the constant opportunities. Um, you know, the influx of, of new talent, new thinking, new ways of doing things, and just the energy that was just so addictive and just incredible. So I think that's what kept me there.
0: Almost sounds like a part of you still there, actually. Sorry, I just had to say that because a lot of times when you talk about yourself, as what has kept me here. I just felt like you haven't really left.
3: No, no, I have. I have very <laughs> physically, psychologically, emotionally, I have left China, but... Uh, I have very fond memories of, of China, so uh, it's, it always has a very uh, good, nice place in my heart. And Kerr, how about you? Actually pretty similar. 1985,
2: I had just graduated from college at UCLA, and like Milo, my Chinese tones were also pretty bad, and also similar to my, Milo's father's Chinese, my mother is Chinese, and my mother, I guess, uh, was sort of tired of, of being humiliated by her ABC son who couldn't really function in, in Chinese very well, and that must have been too much of an embarrassment. And so she, she pretty much required me to to go to China. I, I don't know, that might be overstating a little bit, but I actually didn't have anything else lined up when I graduated from UCLA. And so my mother literally gave me a one-way ticket to Beijing, got me a, a, a job at one of the universities to, to kind of hang out there. And uh, and it was a lot of fun, as as you know, Bryce, because we were at the same school. It was a lot of fun at that time. And similar to, to Milo, it, it, the dynamism, the energy, the optimism, the curiosity, the people, you know, it's really all about people. So those are the things that really were the spark and kept me in China. Yeah, and as you as you mentioned, you know, I've had, had a lot of great opportunities in, in, in China. So yeah, with Boston Consulting Group, I, that was after business. And I actually joined BCG in, in San Francisco. I think I was in the office for like five days and then they, they put me on a plane to, to Shanghai. And as they say, the rest is history. Different though, I've left China, but I haven't really. So I'm I'm still kind of halfway there. I left China in December, but I'm definitely going back. It's uh, I still have an apartment in, in, in Shanghai. I still have all my stuff there. I still have mentally, I'm still, you know, I'm on the phone almost every night with, with, with my friends in Shanghai. I, and I don't think I ever will completely leave China. It's I think it's always going to be a part of, of what I do, what I think about and, and, and who I am.
1: Milo, what motivated you to leave. I think I remember that you left around the first COVID wave. I think ultimately your China experience was interrupted by COVID.
3: There's probably, I mean, there's always many reasons why someone will leave or do anything that they do. Uh, On one level, uh, it felt like the right time. And this is actually, I left before COVID. In fact, I had already had plans to leave in probably August of 2019. Um, I had been uh, in the US with my, my family and doing a training program for my daughter. She's a, a figure skater. And uh, we were in, in LA. And at the time, I was doing a project for a friend at, at Simple Human. I was doing a branding, a brand consulting project. And after the project wrapped up, they offered me a, a position as head of marketing. So. Uh, that sort of accelerated my departure from, from China. So I left in probably, I left in November. And I started my job in November and my family started, uh, joined me probably right, probably days before the, 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 um, the borders were closed. So I think we were all sort of lucky to get out at the time. I think my career in China, I feel was winding down. I, I definitely felt a sense that, uh, a new order had arrived that the experience that i brought was not as necessary uh, as it had once been uh, i think that uh, younger chinese planners strategists were, were coming in to take over the the roles and i think that was great i mean that's that that was inevitable and it was it was just it was a tougher environment and it was getting harder for foreigners i think and it was getting harder for me i mean i was still enjoying myself i was still you know hustling and, and pushing but uh you know, another opportunity in the U.S. and for my daughter was great, and uh, the opportunity presented itself, and I, I decided to uh, to make the make the move.
1: And Kurt, same question:
3: what what motivated you to leave?
2: Well, my situation was a little bit different, so I I stayed through through COVID. In fact, I I reentered uh, China um, during you know that fateful time, early twenty twenty the Chinese New Year and you know Wuhan went into lockdown and I was in Taiwan I was on vacation gosh where was I I think it was in Malaysia when 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 everything happened and then rerouted through through Taiwan and then it was debating you know to come back into China or not and eventually I did and so, so you know, I was there throughout the COVID period. But what motivated me to exit China is I left in December of 2021, which was the end of my my term as, as president of the American Chamber of Commerce. The final sort of motivation to leave, my lifestyle for the past probably 10, 12 years or more, was that I would be based in Asia or based in China, but I would be frequently back and forth to the United States. I probably made... You know, four or five trips back to the U.S. either for business or family or for whatever reason every year. And, um, and obviously that's, that's just not possible. In the COVID situation, the way China is handling it right now, that kind of lifestyle is unsustainable. And my family, increasingly, you know, the center of gravity has, has become the U.S. So with my parents, uh, my parents getting older, they're in their 90s now. And I looked at that situation and just said, look, it's, you know, I'm out of position. If something were to happen and they need my help and I'm, I'm stuck in China and that the, the coming in and out is, is so difficult. So that's really what, what motivated the timing of the exit. But but like I said, I mean, it's not permanent. COVID hopefully is not really, you know, permanent in the sense that it's as debilitating as it is now to, to international travel and, and and to the economy and I'm quite sure that at some point we'll get back to something that looks closer to what we consider normal and when we get to that point I'm sure I'll be I'll be you know spending more time in China.
1: I said at the beginning of the show a lot of expats are considering leaving. I don't know if it's directly due to the current lockdown but more to the fact that maybe the magnetic spirit of the place that was once here is now gone. Uh, do you think people, Milo are being impulsive, or is it generally a feeling that you've heard or heard as well from colleagues or friends that were formerly in China? What are some of the general themes of the conversation you've had with people about repatriated out of China?
3: I, I don't speak to too many people about repatriation. I, I think everyone has a, a unique story to tell. They have different reasons for leaving. I think the expiration date on, on certain individuals is just a uh, arrived some people have found opportunities elsewhere you know in terms of whether the excitement or energy or dynamism of of shanghai is 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 fading or china is fading it's changing for sure i don't think it's any less exciting i think obviously we're, who wants to be in china right now in, in lockdown i mean no one wants to be there but you know, if, you, if you're leaving, sure. I mean, it's, it's not a good time. It's a very difficult time to be in China. I, I think it's going to, at some point, snap back, return. It may not be exactly the same, but I think Shanghai is like, you know, New York or Chicago or Paris or London, a, a great city and will always be a great city. And will continue to, you know, attract amazing talent and amazing people who are looking for amazing experiences and they'll, they'll, they'll find them in Shanghai and China in general.
1: I think that's one of the things that I've always wondered if people are just necessarily being impulsive. I think uh, something that Kerr mentioned was that there's a certain kind of lifestyle or the ability to handle certain personal responsibilities in the sense of dealing with your parents. That's very much a concern with mine. My mother is 88. My father passed away uh, while I was in the first lockdown and it was not able to get back. So that kind of impacted me. But I wonder, maybe, Kerr, if you feel that people are being a little bit too impulsive, do you think that the percentages in the recent AmCham surveys is a bit high? It's obviously a flash survey. So naturally, it will be skewed towards people's emotional state at the time when they answered the question. But do you think that if and when COVID subsides, that things will start to settle down? Or do you think that this is really a major transitioning point within Shanghai and we'll see a different kind of Shanghai afterwards.
2: I don't think I would, I would use the word impulsive in the sense that, oh, it's a spur of the moment. Oh, I've got to go to Las Vegas or something like that. You know, it's, I don't think it's quite like that. But, and I also think that the, the real question is, is going to be how many expats return to China after all this is over? And I think that's going to be telling. But, uh, but back to your, your original question, it, it, it's complicated and, it's, and it's, a, it's a long-term trend. There's no question about it that China as an environment has changed dramatically and it's changed sort of in phases. Bryce, when you and I first first arrived in China in sort of the mid-80s, it was still you know, Mao suits and you know, the culture. It was a lot of fun, but a lot of fun for different reasons. And then, you know, post WTO, so t- 2001, and then kind of the early 2000s, late 2000s, it was a, it was a very different kind of period. The, the growth, the double digit growth in GDP, the opportunities, you, you saw a lot of, of foreigners coming in of all stripes. You had foreigners coming in, you had the American born Chinese coming in, you had the, the Hai Gui people, that was the, the, the so called returnees. That was a big influx of foreigners there, and you know a lot of that was driven by the innovation and growth that was happening in the economy. And now, and now we're here, right? We're in a very different phase in China's development. The economy looks very different. And, and I think, as Milo had, had alluded to earlier, the, the opportunities and the, the role that foreigners play in the economy and in, in businesses, is is different now. And that's and part of that is 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 just a natural process of, of evolution of any developing country. It's 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 a couple of things. I think one is you know the talent pool has come up dramatically in terms of you know what a a China born person and China educated person can do today versus what they could have done you know, in 2000, in 1990 or in the mid 80s, it's totally different. So the role for a for foreign manager is, is different. So that's been a long-term trend. You asked me about the AmCham data. You know, our data has, has been showing us that, that, yeah, there's been a long-term decline probably since, probably about 2010, 2011. Right in that period is, is probably the inflection point where we started seeing a, a slow but steady decline. And then that's been accelerating. That has been accelerating recently, even pre-COVID. And then during what I would call phase one of COVID, meaning 2020 and 2021, you saw some people that said, look, I've, you know, I've had it, you know, or, or the, the border restrictions and the, the in and out became unsustainable, especially for families. It was very difficult for people to plan for schools. And things like that. So you saw a steepening of the curve downward. But this recent thing is, is really the fall off the cliff. The, this recent thing with the Shanghai lockdown and what, what I'm expecting to see is, is actually a series of lockdowns. You know, we're, right now, we've, we kind of feel like we're toward the tail end of the, of the Shanghai lockdown. They're, they're sort of easing some of the restrictions and opening up in different, different sectors, which is probably the subject for another podcast for you guys. But after it's over, it's not over. You know, because Omicron is that way. I think we're going to see what's going to be the next city where Omicron uh, gets gets let loose, and so we're we're going to see other lockdowns probably through 2022.
0: I I have a follow up to an earlier point, Kerr. Uh, this was about China repatriation, and I think a lot of times when we refer to China, we're through the lens of Beijing, Shanghai, and probably a number of tier one cities. When we look at expatriation, future expatriation of foreigners. And, and I think uh, Milo kind of also mentioned on this as well there's increased there's a better talent pool there's a more skilled talent pool in this country do you think that there's going to be a lot more people coming in perhaps not for Beijing, Shanghai and Guangzhou but perhaps into Chengdu and Wuhan you know other parts of China because a lot of times I remember you know whenever we referred to China we referred to China as a country that's, that's driving it uh, at two speeds there is what you see uh, uh, along the eastern coast and then there's the rest of China the real China so do you think there's going to be, you know, there's going to be an influx of foreigners, perhaps not on along the East Coast, but more towards Central China and Western China?
2: That's hard to say. One of the big questions, and, and, I, and I raised that earlier, is like, will the foreigners come back at all? And also, how is China going to adjust? And is, is this something that's an objective? I, I do believe that there's, a, there's definitely a continuing role for foreign companies in China. Is that the same thing as a continuing role for foreigners in China? I think those are two different things. Foreign companies are are well established there; they're there to stay. They've got you know huge capital budgets that that have been dedicated to China, so I don't I don't see that changing. I I see this year in terms of new investments, um, you're going to see a pause in incremental investment by foreign companies. That's a very understandable situation. I mean, just the difficulty of getting in and out and. The lockdown and, and consumer sentiment is really low. But the enthusiasm that, that foreigners are going to have for coming back and also what are China going to do to how welcoming are, are, are they going to be? Hard to say. If you said that now, if you ask that question now, it certainly doesn't feel like like that's going to be a huge priority for China.
3: Well, it seems like they would continue to have foreigners come, but I think they're going to be foreigners from Asia. They're going to be foreigners maybe from the west but who are or have asian backgrounds and maybe foreigners who have very specific skills that cannot be found in china i mean which is which i think is is probably what's going to continue to happen whether it be in first tier or third tier cities
1: this question to milo is that many of our listeners like myself for example have built their careers in china and, and are worried about returning to a place that, where their experiences may not be relevant. How have you adapted yourself to the US market and how easy has it been and and were there transferable skills uh, and experiences that you had that you could apply to the US or did you literally just have to throw out all your past China experiences and reinvent yourself for the home market?
3: I believe that I've been incredibly fortunate in in my return to the US. When I first came back, I joined a, a company simple human uh, that was uh, owned and run by Taiwanese Americans so for me coming back to the US was a, a soft landing you know working with people who I'm I'm, I'm very comfortable with familiar with in, in time with the Taiwanese culture Chinese culture that was an easy transition for me from a business perspective and, and joining and returning to you know DDB and working in advertising again I think it's um, the skills that you acquire in in, um, in one advertising agency in, in Singapore and the same that you acquire in, in Shanghai or Beijing or in New York or Chicago I think I think they're translatable right I think that's that's absolutely translatable I think I think there's some things that we are insecure about when we're in China and thinking you know can we go to these first tier markets like can we go to New York can we go to Chicago can we go to London and and, and prosper and do well and thrive I think if you're if you're talented, you're talented. I don't think it matters uh, which market you're in. Um, I think we did learn some things uh, in um, China. I think what you what you've acquired, what I've acquired uh, you know in China, I think is incredibly translatable and I think it puts, puts us at an advantage actually. you know some of the things that we do uh, that have become second nature to us uh, here in, in, or there in, in China or certain things like you know just being a hustler, you know moving fast, seen everything from an integrated fashion, uh, seen everything digital first, social first. I mean, even some companies here, digital first and social first are are still thoughts for another generation, uh, you know, so that's a bit shocking sometimes. You think that America is always at the forefront, which is not always the case. I think China has been moving so fast and experimenting so much that they've, they've really Gone leaps and bounds ahead of the United States in certain regards. I think there's there's a lot of things that we can bring back that uh, demonstrate that we, we you know we're still relevant. Um, I think there's things that are unnecessary for us to talk about. I mean people don't care about China. Americans don't care about China in general, right I mean if you're at the you know the China society, I think people will, but I think in general most people don't care. They care about their beer and their baseball. They don't care about Mao Zedong or Xi Jinping. They don't. They just don't care. What they care about is the fact that China is holding up their their new furniture, their sub-zero refrigerator. right? They want it now, not three months from now. So that's really what the only thing they care about, to be honest. So I wouldn't say that that's that's helpful. I I think what I also think is, is useful, if you're working with people who have had experience with China and have been in China, they recognize the challenges of China and recognize that if you have been successful and thrived in China, you have something going on, right? Because you know, as they say, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. I think it's the same thing for for Shanghai or for China. If you can make it in China and do very well there, I mean, you can make it anywhere. Um, I feel like I should I should uh, I should sing now, but. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's that's
0: true I'm gonna spin the question back at you and see if you answer it differently were there difficulties for you
3: yeah sure sure no I I mean absolutely you know it's interesting it's a very interesting time for people like myself you know I don't know if if Kerr had this experience probably not I mean we, we we definitely revolve in different worlds but as I said earlier I think in China I had sort of I felt because I'm a very I'm pretty sensitive person, right? So I, you know, if someone doesn't invite me to the party, I'm going to, I'm going to feel hurt, right? So, and if someone doesn't make me feel welcome at a party, I'm going to leave. I definitely felt that I was a foreigner in China. There was a period when I was welcome in China, but then there was like, we don't need you. anymore. we know what's going on 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 social media that you don't know. We know this, you don't know. So you're really not relevant anymore. So I think that's, that's kind of an interesting thing, and, and perhaps that's a bit sensitive on my side, and perhaps it's a bit small in thinking on my side, but it's interesting what, what's happened in the United States is that it's just become a totally different world where people of color are being embraced more than they ever have. You know, I grew up in Queens, New York, and I was definitely um, treated poorly as a, as a foreigner, not, not seen as Chinese, but seen as, you know, just a, a foreign kid, and uh, that has changed. I am embraced. People want to hear me. People want to talk to me because they see me as a person of color. Not that I see myself as a person of color. And it's bizarre because being in Asia for so long, I, I kind of saw myself as a foreigner, like a an American, a white person. But I come back to, to America, I feel like I'm Asian. And I, I had to ask someone, I said, am I, do you see me as white or do you see me as Asian? And he says, oh no, you're, you're diverse. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. It's really, it's just a bizarre moment in time. I don't know, Kara. I'm sure you don't have that experience, but that's just been my personal experience here. Um, coming back to the U.S., I'd love to hear your story.
2: I look at it a little bit differently. I think I think you're right about the sort of uh, general public and you know, person off the street in, in the U.S doesn't think a lot about China and they, what they do think is all not good, like you said, you know, it's, you know, supply chain problems and, you know, where's my product? At a different level, at a, at a corporate level, I think that China has evolved in the, the general thinking among, especially among the large corporations, any company of, of any size, China is no longer a, a niche or an exotic In other words, if we had been repatriating, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, which we did actually, you know, Bryce and I, you know, we had our our thing in Beijing. And then I I came back to graduate school and and worked for a little while in the U.S., five days at BCG, actually, before they shipped me back to China. Uh, At that point, you'd come back from China after working how many years and and you would have been this exotic animal that like, oh wow, you know, you were in China, oh, that's a million miles away. I think today when you come back and at least depending on you know where you're talking, again, if you're talking at the consumer level, man on the street, that's one conversation. But as you get as you get up, you know, I'm 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 talking to people at, at sort of a, a senior executive level and at the board level, it's certainly at the corporate board level. China is highly, highly relevant. It's it's a major market, it's a major market, and has got major complexity, major risk, all those things. So so China is is no longer a niche. So I, I so I look at that as good news. Is so executives certainly coming back to the U.S. Certainly, if they're operating at a at a certain level, then then their experience. Uh, is highly relevant to to, to is at least the large corporations, and then everything else is is true as well. I mean, I think you know business skills are business skills. You know wherever they've been acquired, there's a certain amount of stuff that's China specific. But I would say, I would say the bulk of of the challenges that we've faced and, and hopefully overcome have have given us you know certain skills that that can be relevant. I'm finding actually that there's in, in my role that I'm playing now at the University of San Francisco. Well, I'm in the China, so obviously there's a lot of interest there. But I'm, I'm part of the business school at at University of San Francisco, and 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 there's definitely strong interest in China. I'm, I'm getting a lot of speaking engagements and and sort of interesting conversations. Again, they're mostly mostly negative uh, because you know all the headlines are negative and the and U.S. China relations are in such a bad state. It's a large and important market, even though people are increasingly uncomfortable with it. Mm.
0: And from a difficulties perspective, obviously you're still kind of on the border or you're, you're, you're in between China and, and the U.S. From the community of friends that you might have that have repatriated, what challenges have they perhaps shared on their return to the U.S.?
2: That's a good question. I'm not sure I have a really good answer for you on that, Ali. I don't know. Milo, do you have, a, do you have an answer on that? Look, I, I think
3: we need to separate work from from life, right? I, I think the the biggest challenges that people will face is in life, not necessarily in work, right? Because work is there's a global nature to it. I think there's there's a system that is sort of we're all sort of accustomed to. But I think a large part of coming back is acclimating to the culture. And particularly if, if you're coming back with, you know, a spouse who is not of the culture, the challenges are, are significant. They're significant. And the people I have spoken to uh, will tell you that it takes between two to four years to really start to feel reacclimated and, and, and settled. Um, I've been back for about two and a half years. And I am not settled. I am still in the settling phase of my sort of existence back in the United States. I I think that there's, I mean, there's a lot of little things that you need to think about that you would not have, or you didn't think about, you know, when you're in China, like if you have kids, there's a whole bunch of issues you're going to have to wrestle with, right? You're going to have to uh, educate yourself on, on the school systems you're going to have to educate yourself on on neighborhoods and things like that magnet schools charter schools public schools private schools you're going to have to recalibrate how you think about money right like what you can how far can you stretch your money in the united states versus in in china you know what are you going to do you know if your spouse is, has had the the privilege of an ie or a shufu. That changes as soon as you come back to the U.S., unless you're coming from a very wealthy family, which I assume that most people are not.
2: I think that's an excellent point. Now that now that you mention it. Yeah, I miss I miss my A.I.E. I miss my Sherfu, I miss my I miss my fish guy that took care of my tank. So so that's a good point, Milo. I. I, I, I got to agree with you there. Having said that, yeah, that's, that's an insightful comment. I guess I'm a little bit different situation. So I haven't really felt that because, again, I, you know, my lifestyle, I've been back and forth pretty regularly. And actually, I've always um, kept a home here in San Francisco. And so I've, I've sort of always considered myself bi-coastal in a way you know sort a of one you know a home in in Shanghai and then a home here in in San Francisco that I occasionally used so I didn't feel that harsh you know re-entry I did feel, and I guess this goes into the category I was thinking about, you know, what kind of advice I would have for people who are making that reentry, And I think it the networking, right? Obviously, you know, reentry entry and, and adjustment networking is always going to be part of that. And I, I guess I would say start that networking process early and, and be strategic in thinking about who you want to meet and in what order. But and I think you need to be you need to be flexible and, and you need to be humble as an expat over there. In China, you you sort of get accustomed to to, to playing a certain role and and, and having people return your calls and things like that. And, you know, coming back into re-entering, gosh, you know, you may not be the important person that you thought you were. You know, it's like people have other priorities here. They're busy. You know, they they got family, school, work. You know, meeting with you may not be their highest priority. Shock, you know. So I think you have to be prepared for that. One other thing that that again I was probably not prepared for was people's unwillingness to come out and meet face to face and that was kind of interesting because again being in China we've had a different very different experience with covid in at least in year 1 and 2 right which which sounds really weird because we're we're all we're talking about this lockdown in shanghai which is the extreme of of not coming out and and meeting people but 2020 2021 we didn't have that whole work from home thing and we didn't have I mean, yes, we had masks, we had temperature test, t- temperature testing and contact tracing and all of that infrastructure. We didn't actually have COVID. So few people actually caught COVID in, in that period. So coming back to the U.S., the, ironically, I felt like COVID had actually had a much uh, stronger impact here. And I found that people were actually not as willing to meet face to face as I was
3: expecting them to. It's an interesting one. I mean, I, we can always give the reason for, for, for not doing that. Covid, right? We were we're concerned about that. We're fearful of that. But the United States, and you know, it's probably very obvious to everyone which is, Covid has become so political, and America is so divided, and people are so unsure of who's who and what their their persuasion is, what their political persuasion is. It's just there's there's a lot of reticence to come out and meet and, you know, I have friends who are you know progress highly progressive liberals and. And uh, they just do not want to leave their homes. It's it's and then I have you know Republican friends who are very happy to embrace me with a beer. You know, so it's it's just a, such a it's a fascinating time to be in the United States. And I do think it is problematic that we're 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 not um, able to meet each other. But for the the current job that I have um, that I I was uh, fortunate to get in October, uh, or you know had done some interviews. I had, I had never met anyone face to face. I was pure zoom calls. I had several zoom calls and that was it. And they sight unseen, no physicality, they hired me. And that's where the world has come. You know, we, we're just. There's no need to meet. There's no need to be face to face. We don't need to get coffee. We don't need to shake hands. It's a really interesting time.
2: That that actually segues into into a couple points that I was going to make about about just observations about the the job market, and it, and it sort of um, extends from some of the things that Milo has been been talking about, and and uh, what he just said. I I think that's actually good news. Three observations. One is is that that work from home has really become the new new normal here in the United States. So it's certainly in the Bay Area where I'm, where I'm sitting in, And people are only now sort of coming back reluctantly, you know, sort of two days a week in the office, three days a week. I think this is good news because this dramatically widens the field of, of roles that might be right for you. So in other words, if, you know, people coming back from China, they might land in a, in a, in a certain city and then they might say, OK, well, I'm going to start my job search, you know, in that particular city. Now, I, you can actually consider the entire, you know, there is no limit to where, to the physical location of where that job might be. So I've talked to people who, here in the Bay Area, and they live here, they're, they're, their kids are in school, they, they own a home, they're, they're not going to move. But all of a sudden, you know, a close friend who is considering taking a job in Washington, D.C., that he would would never have, have considered if the because of a physical move, a physical move from from San Francisco to Washington just was not going to happen for him and his family. But he's actually you know applying for that for that job because because he can do it from wherever. Now, I don't know. How long that's going to last? Whether that's going to be the new normal, and 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 whether that's going to extend, you know, for forever? Who, who knows? It, it's possible, but that's that's the current reality. The second thing that was a little bit of a surprise to me is I'm kind of looking around at the at the at the market here, and that is is how much the gig economy has has, has really taken hold and and extended into other industries. It's it's not just driving cars around it 's pervasive uh, there 's a lot of flexibility in jobs and roles and things like that so and also the gig can, may may lead to to the permanent role so i 've talked to a couple of people who who 've had that and then and then the third observation is, is just the overall labor shortage. It, it's extraordinary how, how many companies are out there looking for people. And my sense is it's certainly a, a more acute shortage at the bottom of the pyramid than it is at the top. I mean, that's just the nature and shape of pyramids. But, but I'm also talking to people kind of at the, talking about mid-level managers. And this was new to me. I was um, having dinner with a friend and she was telling me about no-shows like people literally, so she worked for a, a large professional services and accounting firm. And literally she'd gone through the process of recruiting and vetting and interviewing, the whole thing, extended the offer, negotiated the package, yada, yada, yada. Day of, literally the person doesn't show up. I'd never even heard of that before. And um, I mean, it's just such an unprofessional thing to do. I, I, just, I just can't imagine it, but apparently it's a thing. You know, who, who knew?
1: I think all of us shared the amazing experience of being here. And we, we talked about all those things, the reasons that we came and all the great the moments. China is a little bit different now. Uh, China, my students, my NYU graduate students report to me that jobs are not as easily to be found. Many are still looking for work. Do you think for people outside of China, is there still opportunities to, to come back and enter the China market? Would you recommend that despite the fact that, as you mentioned, Milo, that the market's growing? Uh, Kerr, do, do a lot of people still ask you about that? Uh, young people to say that they want to come here, and would you recommend that they come here?
3: I think we all know that the, the first wave of uh, foreigners coming into China were, were a different breed. Than the ones that are coming in today, you and and Kerr and and maybe even Ali, I think, uh, came in for a, a maybe even a purer reason for doing so. I mean, there was a sort of fascination with China, the culture, and that's why you 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 learn Chinese. I mean, Bryce, your Chinese is, is legendarily good, right? So I could, legendary, yeah. okay, um, <laughs> I um, but I think comes from just an innate desire to embrace the culture and swim in in, in the culture of of China. That's changed, and and I think people are less interested in the culture and more interested in the opportunities and the the financial benefits of it. I I think um, if that's the case, I think there are opportunities in China, for sure. I think for the the young entrepreneurial mind, I think is – there's great opportunities for China. And and China is totally open to the entrepreneurial mindset. Someone who has, who's fast, who is ready to do anything to move up the ladder or to sell his product or, you know, to invent something new. I think it's, I think that that continues to be a very interesting market. And the Chinese love that. Like if you're coming to China with nothing, you're not going to, I mean, you're not going to be welcomed other than, you know, you're a tourist and, you know, give me your money and, and be on your way. And, take lots of pictures and be done i i think there's great opportunities i think you do need to learn chinese unless you have just this incredible charisma and can just use your body language to get to move through the streets of shanghai i think that's fantastic but i think there's very few people like that unless you're selling a product that can sell itself um i think you should learn chinese and it shows respect to the chinese culture and i think that you'll be embraced as a result of it but i think you also need to come in with, with some talent you know you can't just uh you can't just come in with perfect Chinese because I've had people who have perfect Chinese who just come, become as like, they're just, right? they're just, they're just, they're just, so, they understand the culture so much more than the Chinese that they're just, it's, it's not helpful for them, I think.
2: I would encourage people to study Chinese, study China, learn about it, get some exposure because it's large, it's important, it's interesting and it's not going away. So knowing a fair bit about China is going to be a valuable thing no matter what you do, no matter where you do it. I think, though, for people to kind of go all in the way we did, Bryce, you know, it's like our whole careers have been in China. That may be a thing of the past. It it may be better to just from a strategic point of view, look at China as more sort of part of your portfolio of skills. As opposed to kind of all in. Uh, now, having said that, it's such a big, interesting place that I think for somebody, certainly you know the scholars or you know people who really just want to dive in on China and just learn about China for the rest of their career, as many people have done. There's probably room for that too. But for sort of a young you know business student starting out, my advice would be to think about it as. as as an aspect of your portfolio and not not the whole thing
0: should we go with the A B test ali so the so a stands for ali b stands for bryce i think they call it a fast fire fire something something anyway i'm gonna mention two words and i'll call either of you out so if you can just kind of reply to me with whatever comes to mind first and we'll go with that so milo starting with you so i'll start with new york or shanghai milo
3: new york I'm from New York.
0: <laughs> Kerr, Apple or Google?
3: Oh, well, Apple. I've spent
2: six years working for Apple, so it's going to be Apple. And Apple has got Apple has a complete hold over my entire life. Every device I have is Apple, so Apple. That was an easy one.
0: Volkswagen or Toyota, Milo? Volkswagen. A Mantle or a baguette, Kerr?
2: Uh, baguette for no particular reason. <laughs> That's one thing I really miss, actually. I got excellent baguette in uh, in in, in Hui. Uh,
0: Ding Tai Fung or uh, In-N-Out Burger, Milo? Ding Tai Fong. of course,
3: <laughs> hands down. You know, I lived in LA for two years and I still don't get the In-N-Out thing, to be honest. And if there's any California listeners, I'm just like, really? <laughs> It's not that special. I'd rather go to Five
0: Guys. Mountains or the beach, Kerr. Uh, mountains. I'm a skier. Bruce Springsteen or Cui Jian, Milo. Oh, Tui Jian. Cui Jian is a very interesting character in Chinese history, right? So, Kerr, what's your favorite hotel? Shangri La or the W? Uh, Shangri La.
2: I like the way it smells.
0: Bicycles or motorcycles? Bicycles. Kerr, how would you answer that one?
2: Motorcycle, only if it's a Harley. Uh,
0: Working at home or living at work? Working at home. TBWA or DDV? DDV. Asahi or Qingdao?
3: I'd say, uh, hands down, hands down, draft Asahi ice cold draft asahi Mm. guys thanks for being on the show Myler,
1: really appreciate it. it was really really fascinating thanks a lot guys thank you you bet thank you and thank you everyone for joining us on today's episode join us next week for another exciting show and to all our listeners until then have a great day